You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. This has been one heck of a week in the nation's capital, so let's get right to it with Washington Post senior national political reporter, Ashley Parker. Ashley, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me. So yesterday, nine days after Election Day, the the Republican Party won its 200th, well, actually, was that yesterday? What's today? Friday, Thursday? I think it was Wednesday when (laughs) um, the Republicans officially hit 218 votes, seats in the House, making it the majority party for the next Congress. Uh, There are still some races left to call, but the Republican majority won't be anywhere near what Republicans hoped or, or even predicted. How were they able to eke out this majority was it ger- gerrymandering? Well, I, I think the more apt question is how didn't they do it? That's really the story, is how they ended up with such a narrow majority in what was expected to be, including not just by Republicans, but by Democrats, right. a real red a real red wave. Um, so yes, gerrymandering uh, has long played a factor uh, in in largely benefiting Republicans. So that's sort of a a background uh, at play factor. Um, But the way in which they really encountered challenges when you look at a president uh, like President Biden uh, with pretty bad popularity numbers, when you look at inflation, when you look at just history and that the president in power, his party often loses uh, a significant number of House seats that first midterm election, um, what happened was that voters didn't like what Republicans were selling, which was a mix of, you know, Trump-inspired MAGA extremism, and also put broadly under the bucket of taking away rights, whether that was the right to a functioning democracy, which of course has ties to the MAGA extremism I just referenced, or uh, the rights of women with the Dobbs decision to control uh, what happens with their own bodies and their own medical care. Um, This proved uh, way more compelling uh, for the Democrats or problematic for the Republicans than I think either party expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was able to win 188 votes, a majority. Uh, this is in his quest to be the next the next speaker. Um, that's a majority of the Republican conference. But to become the, uh, he's going to need 30 more votes if he's going to um, in the entire House when they vote in early January. If he is actually to, able to get the speaker's gavel, is McCarthy in any real danger? of not being the next speaker? So yes and no. The conventional wisdom is that ultimately uh, McCarthy will end up as the next speaker, um, in part because no one has really on the Republican side put forward a plausible alternative. Also, this is reported from a couple days ago, but in talking to people in Trump's orbit, um, as of then at least, the former president was also prepared to support him. Trump coming in and trying to torpedo him would totally upend the landscape. But as of now, that does not seem to be the plan. Um, Often in this first initial ballot, the whoever is running for speaker, Democrat, Republican, even Speaker Pelosi, doesn't always hit that 218 threshold. Um, but it's worth noting that McCarthy is way further below, away that from that magic number of 218 um, 
than other leaders have been in, in that first initial ballot. They may not get all 218, but they, they're 15 votes short um, or they're 18 votes short. They're not 30 votes short. So, so it's a real challenge, um, but nobody can point to the person they think is more likely than Kevin McCarthy. I mean, to your point, usually the, the speaker nominee has a cushion. As you pointed out, Nancy Pelosi had a cushion. A lot of people were able to not vote for her and she still got the gavel. Is there any likelihood that Republican, that McCarthy could convince a good chunk of the 30 to make him, to help him get over the top, to help make him speaker? Well, so some of these initial votes, these 30 who didn't vote for him, have the luxury in this round of balloting of being sort of protest votes, right? Putting mm -hmm. him on notice, uh, a vote against him because there is a concession they want to extract. One thing that was striking to me that in uh, Leader McCarthy's favor is that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who does not feel like a natural McCarthy ally, has come out and said, we all need to support him uh, because we don't want to empower the Democrats. Then you have people like Representative Matt Gates, who have said, no way, no how, I will never vote for Leader McCarthy. Um, and when you really, when, you know, we don't know the exact final number of what the House uh, Republican caucus will be, but he's going to have a cushion of about four or so. Um, and that's very, very few to lose. It's worth noting that Speaker Pelosi really only had that exact same cushion, but she uh, has long proven herself over the decades uh, an, an incredibly powerful and compelling and feared leader of her caucus. And there's no indication that McCarthy, from what we've seen so far, uh, has that skill set or that respect or that loyalty from the majority of his caucus. Well, Ashley, let's keep talking about Speaker Pelosi, who announced yesterday that she was staying in Congress, but not seeking a leadership position within the Democratic caucus. President Biden called her, quote, the most consequential speaker in history. What is the legacy of Speaker Nancy Pelosi? Well, how much time do we have, Jonathan? Um, <laughs> you got about but, but 90 very... seconds on this question. <laughs> okay, very, very quickly, of course, as we all know, uh, she's the first uh, female speaker um, elected. And and I think and she ushered in uh, not just a Democratic um, caucus that looks incredibly different, that where, you know, uh, there are new members who are women, um, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community. She's long fought for progressive policy. She's an incredible fundraiser. So a lot of these Democrats um, who will succeed her uh, and be in Congress for far longer were in part due to money Pelosi raised. Of course, the reason that Obamacare passed is because Pelosi was able to muscle it through. Um, and I feel like that's 90 seconds, but I could certainly keep going. <laughs> well, um, I do want to get in one, one more thing before before I have to let you go. And also on that uh, Obamacare vote, that is perhaps one of her most proud, proudest achievements. You ask her about um, about her whip ability and she will tell you we passed it with not a single Republican vote. Um, Ashley, you know what else happened this week? This happened in Palm Beach, Florida on Tuesday. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. So, Ashley, you reported in the Post yesterday that uh, Trump's announcement did nothing to clear the field, uh, the Republican field. You also report that this run will resemble the first one in 2016 rather than his 2020 reelection campaign. Why? 
Well, that's what he's hoping. I mean, for starters, it's worth noting that uh, despite what the former president says, in 2016, he won and in 2020, he lost. Um, so from a certain kind of psychic cosmic level, it's probably more appealing to him to resemble the campaign uh, that brought him to the White House. Um, but he wanted to have that sort of scrappy underdog feel. In some ways, that's easier when he's running, when he's not in power, when he's running against an incumbent. 2016, frankly, was not particularly professional. Um, he does have professionals surrounding him, but there's already some signs that raise eyebrows that he's not going to have a traditional campaign manager. That feels like a recipe for disaster. But on the other hand, it's worth noting that the sort of three top people in his campaign um, are all seasoned Republicans who are considered, again, professional, responsible, uh, competent at their jobs, which was not how 2016 began. And one more question for you. Is one of the reasons his announcement didn't clear the field is because his potential ri rivals either hold him responsible for the Republicans' relatively poor midterm showing, or they view him as a, as a weakened candidate because of it? Well, I mean, what, what really matters at the end of the day, and this is why Trump could still be the front runner, could be the nominee, is what Republican voters want, and then specifically what the Republican base wants. But the party has long wanted to move past Trump. Uh, they they didn't even like him when he started in 2015, 2016. Um, and so donors uh, who have long disliked him dislike him even more. Uh, party leaders who have long disliked him dislike him even more. Uh, lawmakers who uh, won't publicly say this, but who privately have long disliked him, disliked him even more, in part because he's that thing uh, that that is the worst insult you can say about him but a political loser. Um, he lost in 2020. He lost the presidency. He also helped lose the, they blame him for losing two Georgia Senate seats uh, right afterwards. He obviously encouraged a deadly insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. Um, and then he helps, they believe, lose um, or have far less of a good showing in these 22 midterms um, as well. While he was president, it's worth noting, he also uh, lost in the midterms. But again, that's sort of historically expected. And there wasn't as much blame there as there have been in these other places. Ashley Parker, Washington Post senior national political correspondent. Thank you, as always, for coming. To Thank First you. Look. Have a great weekend. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Associate Editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Hugh Hewitt. Ruth, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Morning, Morning everybody. Okay, Hugh, you knew I'm, I'm sure you knew this was coming, because the last time you were here, the Friday before the midterms, you said, and I kept it, I wrote it down on my little, the piece of paper from, from that day, you said Republicans would win 25 seats in the House and one seat in the Senate. They very well might with the runoff, runoff in Georgia. Um, so far, they have only 218 seats, Republicans, in the House and failed, so far, and failed to take the majority in the Senate. What happened, Hugh? Underwhelming performance uh, by Republican candidates. I'm very disappointed. I missed by a lot, but not, you know, two weeks later, I'm already off the ground, go on to the next cycle. Resilience is part of politics. We've lost a lot. We've won a lot in our lives and we learn how to get over it. Republicans did not deliver what they thought. I think probably because as everyone has said, candidate quality, uh, they came up short in a number of races. 
But I also have to look at the student loan bailout as being the driver of the youth vote gap, which is the most significant. As far as I can tell, it's pretty early for some of the exit data to tell us anything. But I would put down the rather cynical student loan bailout, which is going to be turned over by the courts, already has been enjoined by the courts, as unconstitutional, actually drove turnout on college campuses and among young people in debt under the age of 30 in a way I had not anticipated. And Dobbs had a much greater impact, especially on Republican women that we did not anticipate. I thought it would motivate both sides of the base. It, in fact, motivated the left side of the uh, pro-reproductive rights movement, not the pro-life movement as much. So I think that's it. And the answer, bad, bad candidate deficits, student loan bailout, Dobbs. Ruth, some Republicans appear to blame Donald Trump for the poor showing. Was it him or candidate quality as, as he was talking about? Or, what, or, or was it Dobbs that became the dam that stopped the promised quote unquote red wave? I think there's lots of blame to go around. Uh, and I would point out on Hugh's behalf that if he over um, anticipated a Republican red wave, he was not alone in that anticipation. He was actually on the low end of things. Uh, I, I think a bunch of things conspired against Republicans or were self-inflicted against Republicans. Uh, one of them was that uh, the Supreme Court decision had a way more significant impact than I had anticipated uh, than at, at, when it first came out. And it really energized people. I think it energized people much more than the, the student loan bailout. Uh, I also think that Trump was to blame, not just uh, because people are getting tired of him, uh, cross my fingers on that, um, but also because he was inextricably bound up in the candidate quality issue. Uh, he supported a whole bunch of people who lost seats that by all rights, Republicans should have been able to win. And so uh, I think Mitch McConnell has a Donald Trump voodoo doll that he's busy sticking pins in because he's so angry at seeing the Senate majority snatched away from him once again. And so for me, it was less what uh, Democrats did, though they did the best, they played the best hand that they could given history and given uh, the terrible, or not terrible, but the problem of inflation in particular, staring them down. But this was a self-inflicted wound by Republicans that was exacerbated by the Supreme Court. Um, Hugh, none of this stopped uh, Donald Trump from announcing a run for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. I'm just wondering why so early and why not wait until after the December 6th Georgia runoff for the Senate? Uh, former president has never been predictable, Jonathan and Ruth. You both know that. And I have no idea why he chose now other than an attempt to preempt. And I spoke with former Vice President Mike Pence for an hour this week about so help me God. I spoke to former Secretary of State Pompeo to dissect the election. Neither of them admit to being influenced at all by the former president's announcement. And I believe that's going to be generally the conclusion of the field. And so I think he attempted to preempt and maybe move some chess pieces off the board, but I don't think it's going to work. And But I'm not going to predict anything because 2016, everybody was wrong. Just like this past cycle, everybody was wrong. American politics are locked in a titanic struggle of a, of a realigning nature that's been going on since 9-11.
I would point out 1934. Everyone aspired that Joe Biden was going to be FDR again. Now, do either of you know what happened in 1934 when FDR was FDR, his first off year? He won nine seats in the House and he won nine Senate seats in 1934. Joe Biden eked out preserving some authority on the Congress, but he did not realign the country. The country is stuck at 50-50. So I don't know how Donald Trump plays into that, but it's not a realignment. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't making a realignment argument. All I'm trying to understand is in 2020, Republicans blamed Donald Trump for the loss of those two Senate seats uh, in Georgia. And now he announces a re-election, uh, a new bid for the White House before another Georgia Senate runoff. Shouldn't Republicans be concerned that past his prologue and that Trump injecting himself into the process before the runoff will lead to Senator Warnock um, being elected to a full six-year term? Well, I'll defer to Ruth for her term, but he's done what he's done. Whether or not it was a good idea, it's done. And so I think Herschel's doing okay down there. I had him on the radio show this week, and uh, Mike Pompeo said, give me a time and day. Everyone's going to go. It's going to be an interesting race. It's much different than four years, uh, two years ago because it's in December, not January. No registration is allowed between the election and the runoff as opposed to two years ago. So I don't know what's going to happen down there, but it's done. So Republicans are just getting on with getting on. Um, Jonathan, what I say about that is Trump only cares about one thing, which is Trump. He doesn't care about the party or the fate of the party, except as it reflects on Trump. And so I think what happened here in terms of the timing is that he had said, he had signaled that he was going to have his big reveal uh, right after the election. He thought the election was going to go better for him and for the party than it did. Backing down would uh, risk the greatest sin in Trump world in his mind, which is looking weak. If he didn't announce, it would look weak. He doesn't want to look weak, even though he is, as I say again, fingers crossed, certainly weaker than he has been vis-a-vis -vis the party since, say, 2015, when people didn't take him seriously enough, as Hugh says. So he had to, I think, continue down this predestined road and play his bad hand as well as he could play it now. Uh, I th Trump promised us in 2015, 2016, that we were going to get tired of winning. I see... Um, I think the question for Republicans, first of all, is whether they are finally tired of losing because they lost in 2018, they lost um, in 2020, they've lost, uh, though they gained the House and that is nothing to sniff at, they fundamentally lost in 2022 compared to what they expected and to, compared to what history promises. So do they want to lose again in 2024? It seems like Donald Trump, I keep crossing my fingers here, would be a good bet to help them do that in 2024. You know, Hugh, something just occurred to me in your response to an earlier answer. You said, um, you talked about Mike Pence, you talked about um, um, former Secretary Pompeo, and you said that that's probably the extent of the field. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I misunderstood that. I, I was misunderstood. That's the field oh. that I talked to this week. I think the oh, I see. Oh, 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 okay. Greg Abbott and Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis. It's going to have build a second stage time. <laughs> right, because I was going to say, what about Governor Ron DeSantis? He had a monster win in his reelection effort in Florida. Why? Thank why shouldn't? Why shouldn't 
we consider him to be the biggest threat to Trump's 2024 ambition? I think we should. And I'm neutral. I'm in Switzerland. I'm in Republican Switzerland, like I was in 2016, (laughs) because I want to talk to them all. I'm neutral as to the Republican. I will support whoever the nominee is. But if I'm Donald Trump, I'm looking up at Tallahassee and saying, oh, my gosh, that's my biggest problem, because Don Ron DeSantis has got the Trump agenda and uh, a fresh look and some successes in Florida. But Tim Scott's awfully good. Mike Pompeo's awfully good. Mike Pence is going to run as a traditional Republican evangelical conservative. And it's going to be an interesting race. I like that you bring up Florida because the red wave did happen in Florida. It was a big one. Oh, well, yeah, I mean. I think red got redder and blue got bluer. Look at Josh Shapiro winning in Pennsylvania. He's the best Democrat. He's the best Democrat in the country. And Attorney General Shapiro, I, I know him a little bit. I like him a little bit. If he runs against a Republican or if Jared Polis runs against, we're going to have a great battle other than Trump, a Republican other than Trump, a, a generation skip. And I'm looking forward to that because, honest to goodness, we got to get to the millennial. they got to get involved because we're just these people are too old to run the country. <laughs> Let's just leapfrog to Gen Z. Um, <laughs> um, Hugh, I'm going to stick with you because I'm just wondering <laughs> something. I'm just wondering about House Republicans in their impending, uh, impending leadership. They're already openly discussing possibly launching investigations into uh, President Biden and his handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, his handling of immigration. Um, and as we saw in a press conference yesterday, they're all about Hunter, Bi- Hunter Biden. I'm confused, Hugh, because Republicans all around the country their campaigns were all about inflation and crime and the hard state of the economy. So why shouldn't anyone view the now stated um, plans of the Republican incoming Republican majority to be nothing more than an agenda of vengeance? Uh, everything changed when you don't get the Senate because you can't do anything on the budget. All right. So it becomes a reconciliation is out the door. They could have done reconciliation with 51 Republican senators. They can't. So the only thing the House can do is negotiate at the 11th hour through Speaker McCarthy and his team or run investigations. The most significant thing they're going to do is set, stand up the selectivity on China, bipartisan. They will let their members, the Democrats choose their members, and they will move forward on that, I hope, quickly. Comer's a very impressive guy. And I, I'm not very interested in Hunter Biden. I'm very not like zero interested in Joe Biden because I don't think he's going to run again. I'm just not interested. But the Republicans have got to do what oversight is supposed to do. And I'll, I yield back to Ruth. Because yeah, oh, that's great, Ruth. What do you think about this? Because I, it all to me just sounds like um, just a recipe for gridlock supreme. Um, It's a recipe for worse than that, I think. As from Republicans' point of view, I think that they um, go full Hunter Biden. They go full oversight. I'm a believer in congressional oversight, but I'm not a believer in. hunting after things that voters don't care about and, you know, choose an explanation that, well, they don't have the Senate majority, so they won't be able to do anything. So they're simply relegated to other things. That's not what voters want to hear. Voters don't want endless hearings into Hunter Biden. Voters want to see an agenda from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that says, here are your concerns. Here is how we propose to address these concerns. I heard nothing from Republicans during the campaign about what they would actually do to combat inflation. If they had it, it didn't come across to me. And so I don't think it came across to voters. I think Republicans 
engage in this um, investigative agenda at their peril. We saw it not work for them with the Clinton impeachment, and I suspect we're going to see it not work for them again. Um, that's not to say it's not going to be an incredible pain for uh, Democrats and this, particularly the Biden administration. It is, and I think it's going to be very difficult for Leader McCarthy, assuming he's the speaker, to resist because uh, I think he will get the 218 votes he needs to become the speaker. But I also think that every day of his speakership, it will be in peril and he will be uh, having to succumb to the whims and the worst instincts of the most extreme elements of his caucus. And that's going to be his fate, having secured the speakership for uh, the rest of his tenure. What do you make of that, Hugh? Because, you know, I agree with Ruth in her assessment. If he becomes speaker, it's just going to every day is going to be a living hell for the guy. But I'm still not convinced that he's going to be speaker. Oh, well, he's going to be speaker. And I listen to Ruth very closely on this because I think she's right in terms of the Republicans get off on the wrong foot. And if they don't stay together, they'll all hang separately. Speaker Pelosi, and we should, I want to add to the, uh, the general, the genius of Speaker Pelosi is actually in her perseverance through winning the House twice, losing the House twice, and standing up. Her most important vote was on TARP when she brought Democrats together with Republicans to keep the financial system from collapsing. Kevin McCarthy needs to study her playbook, which is carrots and sticks. And we never see the carrots, but we have seen the sticks. And she's got a left edge of her caucus, which is just as wild and hard to control as McCarthy's right edge of his caucus is. She did it. He has to. Oh, Ilhan Omar and AOC. I, I mean, I Last I checked, they weren't supporting people who who uh, um, invaded the Capitol. But go on, finish your thought, because I want to get. Uh, well, I don't think any member of the right uh, in Congress invaded the Capitol either, Jonathan. I mean, would you like to name someone? No, that's not the point I was making. But we've okay. got sure. not, we've got we've got less than a minute left, Ruth. In the time that we have left, I, I would love for you to close us out with your your thoughts on on Nancy Pelosi and her tenure as Speaker of the House. Uh, I wrote a column um, when she became Speaker. The headline was Grandma with a Gavel. No <laughs> one has, uh, her speakership was extraordinary, as Hugh said, in terms of her ability to take a caucus. I'll, I'm more on the Capehart side than on the Hewitt side in terms of how crazy that caucus was compared to the Republicans. But she understood how to keep them in line that is going to be, it is going to be, I, let me put it this way, Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy Pelosi, and I think we are going to be reminding ourselves of that or reminded of that um, many times in the in the days and weeks and years to come. Ruth Market, oh, of course I just want you. The Democratic the last word, Hugh. Party. The Democratic Party is a better party than the Republican Party. They have better organization, better discipline, and it's because of Nancy Pelosi. And with that, well, that's a nice Wow, Kumbaya. Nice, yeah. I'm well, going to She's a Machiavelli, no Machiavelli. Sorry, Jonathan, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, you said something nice, Hugh. Let's leave it there. Hugh <laughs> Ruth Marcus. <laughs> Thank you both, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.